0: Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you, Colonel Shackleford for Shackleford uh, and everyone else, of course, for the introductions and the opportunity to uh, share with everyone this update on our telemedical uh, support for operational environments. Um, uh, I think you'll find it uh, hopefully interesting that the available services and kind of the capabilities uh, that we have previously been developing have really rapidly grown and are starting to harden uh, for long-term viability uh, ever since the establishment of the new virtual medical center at Brook Army Medical Center. Um, as uh, uh, Colonel Shackerford said, my name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jeremy Pamplin. I'm currently Director of Virtual Critical Care and Virtual Health at Madigan Army Medical Center. Um, And then although not an official title, uh, I've been working for the last couple years with certainly many of the people on the line and as well as others um, as the, uh, I guess, the director, medical director, developer of the first the virtual critical care consultation service and subsequently uh, the advanced virtual support to special operations uh, system, uh, which we'll talk more about here as we move forward. Um, I should also say that... uh, um, we are uh, trying to record this uh, uh, conference this morning for one of the um, ProlongedFieldCare.org podcasts. Uh, so it, this will um, uh, maybe it'll sound a little bit more scripted than some of my uh, normal uh, conversations. I was told to stick to the script as much as possible. Uh, and then at the end, uh, when we do uh, our questions, I will probably repeat any questions uh, that are asked. Uh, so next slide, please. Um, of course, the views and opinions that I express today are, are those of my own. Uh, they don't reflect those of the United States uh, Medical Department, Army, the uh, Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. And my only financial disclosures uh, to uh, to share that I've received uh, grant funding from several for several projects from the uh, Medical Research Material Command through uh, telemedicine through the Telemedicine Advanced Technology Research uh, Center, as well as Joint Program Committee One and Joint Program Committee Six. So uh, this is a build slide, if you want to just build a a couple through, um, that would be great, Yep, perfect. Um, So uh, first of all, I'd like to start by reviewing a couple cases that I think some of you online may be already familiar with, Uh, at least one of them has been presented um, on the JTS conference several months ago. I think they highlight the potential value of a telemedical consultation uh, during the prolonged field care or delayed evacuation or extended care, prolonged care, whatever you would really like to call pre-hospital care uh, by a non-specialist that extends beyond our current doctrinal timeline. So more than an hour's worth of care. Um, The first case uh, occurred in April of 2017 when a Portuguese coal freighter, uh, the Tamar, experienced a confined space chemical explosion in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, This explosion injured uh, four of their crew members um, and without any medical capabilities aboard the ship they requested emergency medical support and uh, the New York Air National Guard 103rd Rescue Squadron uh, was mobilized to respond. By the time the team had arrived, two of the casualties that were aboard the ship had died. Uh, the remaining two casualties had suffered 60% total body surface area burns, and the team uh, that, uh, that uh, jumped in needed to manage them for nearly uh, 36 hours while the ship had made its way towards Portugal. Uh, during that time, uh, this team of PJs provided, uh, amongst other things, IV fluid resuscitation, wound care, escharotomies, uh, and a cricothyroidomy uh, for one of the casualties. And throughout this encounter, I think it's probably useful to note that the team maintained really regular contact with their unit surgeon uh, who provided recommendations and sometimes just support uh, for many of the team's interventions and medical decisions. Um, and this uh, surgeon also used personal contacts at the uh, U.S. Army Institute of Research Burn Center uh, for some of his recommendations that he made to his team. Next slide, please. Uh, the second slide, our second case, occurred in May of 2017 in Cameroon, West Africa. Um, in this scenario, uh, the task force physician, so the most uh, senior medical person on the ground, uh, actually developed symptomatic supraventricular tachycardia. And unfortunately, given the uh, limited experience of uh, the remaining medics that were on the ground with him uh, at managing SVT, uh, they contacted uh, the U.S. Army uh, Africa surgeon, uh, one of the PAs, uh, who then, uh, again through kind of personal uh, uh, knowledge, uh, called the Brook Army Medical Center Emergency Department um, in order to get some additional recommendations about uh, how to manage this SVT. Uh, ultimately, the patient did reasonably well, but in the uh, after-action review uh, by, by this group, um, the, the team recommended that a telemedical system uh, that had on hand a network of subject matter experts and that could provide uh, assistance uh, to outstations with medical emergencies would be useful, and the team furthermore kind of said they, they thought this uh, telemedical system needed to be accessible to all personnel and not only medical personnel. So clearly these, next slide please, clearly these two events uh, demonstrate that an operational need for some form of telemedical support uh, exists um, <coughs> or the requirement for reach back uh, to uh, for care for the ground um, uh, to achieve specialty expertise uh, would be valuable. Uh, The challenge is, you know, in this case, really, neither of the teams uh, used some of the formalized systems that that currently had existed at the time. Uh, Instead, both of them used some of their medical chains of command for help, uh, and then also uh, uh, circumstantial uh, support from uh, friends or relationships they had developed informally. (coughs) Excuse me. and while these kind of informal relationships uh, can be uh, useful, certainly they are common across medicine. We all experience them during our training. Um, they are kind of fragile solutions to, uh, to achieve uh, medical uh, consultation uh, because they're really dependent upon the individual personalities of the care providers that are involved, um, as well as those relationships with or knowledge of how to access the right expert at the right time. I think everyone on the call uh, is understanding that we have been, this is the next slide please, have been challenged to win a complex uh, world uh, by the new Army operating concept. But the real question is is how do we as a medical team support or optimize combat casualty care across such a diverse spectrum of uh, care environments Uh, using really the highly variable and oftentimes very limited medical resources and sometimes inexperienced caregivers uh, who might be who might oftentimes have a great breadth of knowledge and really some exceptional skills uh, but they may have limited depth and or experience with taking care of specific diagnoses or problems. Next slide please. So I think that uh, uh, this is uh, uh, the purpose of this conversation today that uh, telemedicine is one possible solution uh, to this problem set and that's what I would like to uh, talk to you all about today. Um, the the review, uh, the outline of what we're going to talk about uh, is uh, is shown here. Um, the uh, I think I'm going to spend a little bit of time uh, boring you all first with some of the definitions that exist with uh, telemedicine because I think uh, you know, frankly, telemedicine is is quite new to uh, our culture. Certainly, new to the kind of environment that we uh, do our medical care in. So it's worth worth having a common operating picture uh, with some specific definitions. Um, Then we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the solutions, uh, you know, why we're developing these solutions now, uh, some of the solutions that currently exist, and hopefully some uh, practical take-home points uh, for the group. So um, what is uh, uh, telemedicine? Uh, Telemedicine is the remote evaluation and diagnosis uh, treatment and or consultation uh, using telemedicine technologies. uh, asynchronous communication uh, is one-way or unidirectional, often time-delayed communication. And examples of this are text messaging uh, and email mess or emails. Uh, so- So one of the key questions of course we need to answer is why haven't we been uh, focusing on this problem set before Uh, and if you continue to build the answer is uh, before uh, around the the 2013 drawdown of forces in Iraq and Afghanistan most of our pre-hospital care was limited to uh, less than an hour Um, and this is certainly a problem set that most of our uh, uh, new or uh, uh, general practitioners like uh, our medics are, are comfortable with. Uh, And certainly most of the consultative support that was done uh, in this uh, environment was provided by local and theater assets um, through those types of personal relationships developed on the ground. Next slide, please. So our challenge now and in the future uh, is uh, really the tyranny of distance. Uh, Many people have seen either this slide or one similar to it. Uh, The original one was uh, developed by Colonel Sean Keenan. Uh, The current anticipating operating environments of our future really are big, Africa and the Pacific Rim, uh, whereas Iraq and Afghanistan uh, can easily fit in the United States of America, really just in the central United States. Uh, The entire United States fits into the uh, northern uh, part of Africa. And if you've ever looked at uh, one of the maps of the Pacific Ocean, all continents of the world can sit inside the Pacific Basin. So um, where it used to take less than an hour for us to reach advanced surgical and critical care support, Now those resources are more on the 24 to 72 hour uh, timeline following a a prolonged evacuation. Um, Our medical footprints are getting smaller with these er uh, areas of operation that are getting bigger. um, Our well are very well trained and sometimes uh, inexperienced or unknowledgeable medics not because um, they haven't been training hard but let's face it you really can't train on everything. Uh, You can't know everything. Uh, but these folks are forced to care for patients really over a long and with uh, problem sets that they haven't previously encountered. Uh, next slide, please. Of course, most people um, are familiar now with the concept of prolonged field care. Um, this is uh, an operational problem. Uh, it is not a plan, so uh, it's something that we do not plan to do, uh, but is a, a situation that we are found in and therefore it should be planned for. Um, I'm not really going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, what prolonged fuel care is or what it's not, who should be performing it, who shouldn't be performing it um, because it's a reality that many people face whether they were intending to uh, or not um, and uh, the reality is we can't evacuate our casualties maybe as quickly as we would like to. Um, If you need to know more or would like to know more about this problem set and how to manage it I would certainly refer you to the prolongedfuel.org website. You can see at the top of the uh, PFC uh, symbol there. Uh, they've got a, a wealth of information on that website, including the the ten core uh, capabilities, uh, podcasts, blogs, links, and other references. Uh, next slide, please. One of the key points um, of prolonged field care is that you have to survive beyond the initial injury in order to get to the prolonged field care aspect. Um, So uh, important to all prolonged field care uh, is the emphasis uh, that it is built upon a foundation of uh, excellent tactical combat casualty care, something fortunately most of our medics and uh, caregivers are are familiar with these days um, and usually exceptionally good at. Um, unfortunately, it's uh, more difficult to train and educate our folks about the myriad of problems that can occur uh, in the hours and days following the acute trauma or illness, um, and it's in that window that uh, prevention of complications is key, and sometimes uh, experience and uh, uh, prior, uh, uh, prior training uh, for uh, these kinds of uh, challenges, like with critical care or surgical training, uh, certainly helps. Next slide, please. Um, And it's in this environment, uh, again, that I think that telemedicine really may be able to aid the caregiver uh, on the ground um, as it bridges a significant gap in knowledge and experience uh, between local caregiver and the next higher level of care. Um, It's important to be clear, though, telemedicine is not Plan A. Uh, Plan A is to train and to educate our clinicians and to deploy, when possible, the necessary resources uh, to care for the casualty at the point of need. Um, And if you have ever heard, again, Sean Keenan uh, speak, he always says that if you think you might need a surgeon, you should bring one with you. So the challenge that we're faced with, of course, is when um, you don't have your surgeon or you don't have um, the resources that you might need um, because you can't deploy everything. So there does need to be a Plan B, and that's where telemedicine hopefully fits in. Next slide, please. I should also be fair, uh, there are some potential advantages of telemedicine, maybe even over our traditional deployment mindsets. Um, If a system is implemented correctly, it may offer us to have a smaller footprint of certain medical assets or certain medical personnel, Um, so maybe less deployment that could be potentially cost uh, savings. Uh, An example of that might be if you are able to train uh, technicians or medics uh, to help with certain types of exams like an ophthalmologic exam or dental exam uh, using remote uh, telemedicine technology solutions. Um, You may not have to deploy deploy an ophthalmologist or dentist uh, to all the current locations that they are being deployed to. Uh, And in that context, uh, telemedical support can actually improve access to certain types of care providers. Uh, And certainly if the um, network infrastructure, and I mean the uh, uh, communications infrastructure, is robust enough, um, it it could be possible for a remote expert to uh, quote-unquote see a soldier or a service member at a remote outpost without the need for them to be evacuated. And this could reduce some of the unnecessary medical movements that we have both in theater and out of theater. Next slide. Um, Unfortunately, if history is going to uh, prove itself correct, and it usually does, uh, the myth of uh, having robust, highly reliable, large bandwidth, uh, low latency, and a fully functioning communication network in any of our future engagements is um, uh, likely uh, to occur. Uh, certainly, we don't have those uh, types of infrastructure uh, now, and uh, because Murphy is ever present in our in our uh, operating environments, the uh, uh, it is should be anticipated that our communications will ultimately uh, be vulnerable and certainly could fail. Uh, not that we shouldn't anticipate um, that the technology will be available at some times, and we should plan for that, um, but. Uh, I just want everybody to consider for a moment uh, the last time they tried to either FaceTime or Skype or do a video teleconference with a family member. And now I want you to think about whether or not it worked perfectly as designed. uh, And if it works perfectly every single time as designed. And of course the answer is that it doesn't. Um, even though that system is operating on a pretty robust and fairly well-maintained cellular network or um, uh, uh, internet network infrastructure in the United States. Um, The reality is that in these social situations, many of us don't even take notice of this problem. We just switch to a phone call or we say that, hey, you know, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, I'll just call you right back or I'll call you back later. Um, But of course, that's not an acceptable solution for medical support for our casualties. Uh, next slide, please. So um, it's a, I think many of us are, are recognizing that this is a challenge, and we're working to develop solutions uh, to these uh, communications problems by exploring automation, robotics, um, and potentially uh, artificial intelligence that could provide some of the advanced medical care or clinical decision support uh, where there is no expert available. Uh, but these solutions uh, are certainly still in development, probably on the, on the range of uh, 10 to 20 years away from being ready for prime time Um, and in that case I think telemedicine uh, really may be able to fill the gap of the knowledge and expertise. Next slide please. One more slide. Okay, so um, what are some of our current efforts and capabilities? One more slide. Um, One of the ways to think about this problem uh, is in terms of what the medical assets or medical needs are uh, that must be supported by telemedicine. Uh, This is now becoming a a slightly older slide. Uh, Some of you may have already seen it. Um, And uh, it was developed after uh, uh, Major Jeff Del Volpe and I uh, reviewed a year's worth of the asynchronous consultations through the uh, Office of the Surgeon General's email consultation system run by Chuck Lappin. as one might expect, uh, the majority of need uh, is routine problems that can probably be handled by a, an asynchronous solution, in this case the email consultation system. Other problems, uh, however, uh, due to medical conditions and or communications available, so if you have a limited uh, communications window, uh, you, may, uh, you may have a more urgent or even emergent need uh, to get consultation. And those types of scenarios uh, really require a synchronous telemedicine solution. Um, Still some other problems um, as you move up the pyramid. Might benefit from a continuous engagement of the remote experts to a critically ill trauma patient who needs to be evacuated. Um, that patient may benefit from ongoing monitoring by a critical care nurse or a physician uh, while waiting the act, uh, evacuation, or even potentially during the evacuation. And this might be able to limit uh, the uh, the way that we currently uh, use some of our uh, high value uh, medical personnel uh, in the uh, uh, in in the local theater. Um, Whereas now, we currently uh, will oftentimes send the most experienced provider on a medevac with a patient. Um, If we were able to remain continuously engaged with that patient from a remote location with experts, perhaps that um, high value medical personnel could stay at the point of need uh, rather than having to get on a a medevac and, and accompany a patient. Uh, Finally, uh, the very top of this pyramid looks to be uh, related to procedural telementoring, which is when a local caregiver needs to perform a life saving intervention. Uh, Maybe we'll say something like a chest tube, but really has limited experience in doing so. Maybe they've never done it on a live person before. Um, And this type of a problem set um, uh, has been actually uh, demonstrated by the Israeli Defense Force um, to be uh, feasible for using. Uh, or amenable to using augmented reality to successfully coach both trained and untrained novices uh, through that procedure. So they've been able to take trained and untrained uh, basically medical students uh, to perform tube thoracostomy using telemedical solutions. If we go to the next slide, it looks blank. If you could build that all the way to the time you have a a red line across the bottom, uh, that would be great. Um, So our military healthcare system um, over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, one more uh, build, uh, has been developing uh, several telemedical solutions to support operational forces really over the past 30 years. Um, The ones that are shown here are from the past really about 10 years or so. They certainly don't include all the efforts that exist, um, but they are... um, Uh, They are at least a a sampling of what has been available for the last uh, several years. Uh, They include asynchronous solutions at the top, um, such as the AKO or OTSG email consultation system um, that probably nearly uh, all of us have used at one point or another, um, uh, to also the more recent uh, Pacific Asynchronous Telehealth uh, Portal and the Health Experts Online Portal. Those two solutions, uh, many don't uh, realize, but they're actually the same uh, technology, they're even the same computer servers, both of which are actually housed at uh, Tripler, uh, but they are managed by two different teams, one at Tripler and one at Portsmouth. we have more recent efforts, uh, certainly some of which I've been a part of, uh, to provide synchronous support with telephone-based solutions like the Virtual Critical Care Service or the Advisor, uh, the original Advisor system, um, to also having some of the video uh, teleconsultation or video solutions like the Telehealth in a Bag system that was developed at Longstool, uh which many of the folks in Africa have been using. Uh, a similar video consultation service was used by the synchronous uh, telemedical support to special operations forces, or the STS three uh, solution, uh, that used uh, something called Web Real Time Communication software, um, and um, that uh, that uh, that was a project primarily with Fifth Group, uh, Fifth Special Forces Group, uh, out of Syria. Uh, the most recent effort has been uh, developing uh, uh, procedural telementoring with a Battlefield Emergent Stabilization Skills Trial uh, that is currently being conducted uh, by some of the folks at Fort Bragg as well as uh, WOMAC Army Medical Center, so third group in WOMAC. Um, and they're uh, going to be examining augmented reality and other telemedical technologies to support uh, uh, procedural telementoring. So, uh, usually when I show the slide, uh, people think that it's a a lot of options and rather confusing. I do too. Uh, So, it's good to know that uh, we have made a lot of progress since the vMedCEN has uh, started um, and we are trying to simplify those uh, solutions. So, if you go to the next slide, please. Uh, We now have uh, the advisor system. Um, the advisor system, uh, as it currently stands, integrates all of the previous telemedical solutions that I had on that last slide into one uh, program that is anticipated to be uh, core POM funded in the years to come. Um, this, in, in this system, all urgent and emergent consultations are routed through an automated phone system to reach a specialty consultant uh, in real time. Uh, and routine consultations are still managed by either the AKO email system or where available. So this is primarily CENTCOM and PayCom, uh, the uh, the Path and Help portals. Uh, we are working towards bringing all the routine consultations into the Path Help system, uh, but that uh, is not quite ready for prime time. If you go to the next slide, uh, this uh, this slide shows the current uh, telephone tree of uh, how Advisor works. Um, uh, if you call one of the either toll-free number or DNS um, number, or sorry, DSN number that's at the top uh, of this slide, you are connected with an automated system. If you press option one, you're connected to the Virtual Critical Care Consultation Service currently and hopefully in the relatively near future, you'll be connected to the Joint Telecritical Care Network workstation that is on call. And I'll uh, talk about that in just a moment. If you press 2, uh, you are directed to the Specialty Services menu, so it's a, a secondary menu, uh, and you will provide options for talking to a general or trauma surgery physician, an orthopedic surgeon, um, a pediatrician, a toxicologist, or an infectious disease specialist, uh, and then there is a option on that menu for a kind of catch-all if uh, you need a specialty that's not otherwise listed. If you press three from the top menu, you're actually directed to uh, one of three on-call emergency rooms, and uh, we've just added uh, number four option, which if you press it, you're directed to the US Army Burn Center. Hopefully in the very near future, we'll also add an option number five, uh, which will be connecting uh, folks to the acute lung injury team um, uh, or the ECMO service that's now at San Antonio. Uh, Next slide. And this next slide is really more for situational awareness than for anything else, because many people have asked questions uh, about this uh, program or this uh, effort. Uh, So uh, the critical care community across the military health system is working uh, to uh, create a joint telecritical care network, or Jetson an effort to provide really more reliable telecritical care services to both MTFs and for operational forces and it's anticipated that once these workstations are online staffed 24-7 that we'll have uh, at least the opportunity to start trying to provide continuous remote casualty monitoring slide we hope that this platform uh, the Jetson will be able to provide uh, both readiness and sustainment training for our operational and our garrison telemedicine providers um, as they support combat casualty and if you go to the next slide, uh, conceptually that allows us to train as we fight um, in the TDA and to worlds. Next slide. So bringing it home, um, we're going to talk about some practical take-home points uh, for uh, operational telemedicine. Uh, first, uh, I need to try to dispel a few uh, additional myths about telemedicine, uh, particularly in the operational world. So the first one is uh, telemedicine is not only video teleconferencing like a FaceTime or a Skype. It is really something that we do in medicine every single day and really all the time. It's picking up a phone. It's writing an email. It's sending a text. It's just asking for help. Uh, telemedicine asking for help with telemedical consultation is not a sign of weakness. Um, asking for help about something uh, you're not an expert in or have strength in is really um, a sign of strength. It's called doing uh, the right thing and having good judgment. Um, So I am certainly not a kidney doctor, I'm not a liver doctor, I'm not an infectious disease specialist, and when I run into situations that I'm not uh, certain about or uh, uh, perfectly clear about how to manage, I ask help and I think that really everyone else out there should too. Good telemedicine um, is actually not easy. Asking for help efficiently and effectively, uh, and then providing it from a remote location are skills, and they take practice. And we need to continue to train them. Uh, many people who have participated in some of the uh, soft training exercises uh, have uh, experience of that firsthand. Um, and then finally, um, as this, and this is really more for some of the providers that are out there. Um, If you give the best advice that you can with the information that you have available to you, you are not liable for the outcome of that casualty or that patient. Ultimately, the local caregiver is responsible for the patient's care, um, and you can only make the best decisions that you can and give the best advice you can with the information that you have available. Um, that being said, I highly encourage people to document uh, what information is provided to them at the time of their consultation and what recommend, recommendations they provide with that information. Um, and ideally, uh, you should try to send that documentation in whatever form it is, usually it's an email, uh, to whoever is making the uh, consultation to you. Uh, next slide. <coughs> Uh, several of us have tried to capture our lessons learned over the past few years um, in uh, this teleconsultation and prolonged field care position paper that was just published in uh, this uh, fall edition of JSOM. Um, and I'm going to try to quickly go through uh, the four main recommendations from, uh, from this uh, paper. Uh, Next slide. First of all, planning. Uh, So uh, providers should develop a teleconsultation PACE plan uh, before they deploy, uh, not afterwards. Uh, That plan ideally should include the who to call and the how to communicate them. Uh, that plan must be, it must be, and must remain flexible, um, and it should adjust to the available local theater and strategic uh, medical and communication assets that are available. Uh, communication solutions uh, within this plan should include um, and not be limited uh, to uh, commercial and tactical options. And I think this is important because you'll find again Murphy rules, and that uh, whatever uh, communications platform you plan for may or may not be available when you actually need it. Um, The remote consultant and or the expert uh, that is available to call uh, could certainly include the advisor system now, but you should also consider other medical assets in the chain of command, uh, the theater of operation, the area of operation to include surveyed and approved uh, local hospitals and coalition forces. Uh, So don't forget to reach out and and, uh, interact with the friends that are nearby. Uh, units uh, should test and train uh, this plan whenever possible, both defo- before deploying and uh, should do the communication checks uh, after they have deployed. Next slide. Uh, <laughs> training is important for this, uh, this uh, uh, telemedical solution. Uh, Local caregivers and remote consultants uh, need to train to provide optimal care using various uh, telemedical technologies including phone, uh, video video teleconferencing solutions or softwares. Um, They need to uh, practice uh, doing remote ultrasound guidance whenever possible um, and whatever other scenarios they feel that they may run into like uh, procedural telemetry. This should consist of both classroom and whenever possible practical exercises. Uh, Next slide. Uh, When you're doing your practical exercises, uh, you should try to uh, include in that training uh, various levels of patient complexity. So doing a a consult on a a simple patient is much different than doing one on a complex patient. Um, And when you incorporate critically ill and or injured patients into the exercise, uh, it becomes even more lifelike and uh, valuable training. Um, Certainly some of that training takes a lot of time, uh, so we have uh, provided some options for how to uh, potentially uh, uh, um, uh, structure or scale that training uh, according to the minimum, better, and best uh, kind of model. And if you want to read more about that, you can uh, look at that in the position paper. One of the things that we found uh, useful um, and important is, that, um, is, is this PrEP mnemonic. Uh, one of the challenges, I think, uh, that faces our, our medics and some of our um, uh, general practitioners out there is uh, the ability to ignite telemedicine, and what I mean by that is that uh, oftentimes people are not willing to uh, make the phone call. So, uh, the PREP mnemonic, which stands for uh, Preparing, Recognizing, Executing, and Performing, is one way to structure some of the training uh, that you, that you uh, conduct, um, and that may ensure telemedical consultation is optimized. Uh, it, again, uh, good teleconsultation uh, begins. Sorry, it's early in the morning here, and we have an alarm going off. Um, good teleconsultation really does begin uh, with a team that's well prepared to perform the teleconsultation task, uh, and using the prep mnemonic uh, can help uh, people get there. Um, I think that recognition, I just want to highlight recognition, recognition is is probably one of the most important aspects of this mnemonic and recognition of the need to perform teleconsultation begins when the person on the ground realizes that they have a question to which he or she just doesn't know the answer. So as soon as you recognize the need for help, you should consider making the phone call, make the phone call early, make the phone call often. Uh, Another aspect uh, that I think is worth highlighting um, is that the consultation uh, to be most effective and efficient uh, should use a script uh, or telemedicine script that is uh, completed and uh, before the consultation is made um, and ideally trained with before uh, deployment. An example of that script is available at ProlongedFuelCare.org and that script has been tested in well over a 100 training scenarios up to date. Uh, if we go to the next slide, uh, we do have a, uh, uh, this is actually the VC3 call script and we have a guide for it. Again, it's available at prolongedfieldcare.org. Just keep going. Next slide. There we go. Keep going. Another slide. Um, this is the front, call, front side of the script. If you go to the next slide, uh, you can see that uh, in this guide there is some uh, um, guidance about how to use that call script. Keep going. You have the back side of the call script and then one more slide um, and that's the instruction for how to use the back side of the call script. Okay, um, uh, the uh, question is often asked, what's the best technology to use for a teleconsultation? And the reality is that you should use the best one that's available uh, that optimizes the consultation at hand, Um, but you should also realize that technology is a tool that is used for teleconsultation, it's not a requirement for it. Um, So you really should not waste your time or your resources establishing some, you know, high-end, very special video teleconferencing solution um, if a lesser, more available technology like an email or phone call is sufficient for the consultation at hand. Um, So if you don't need special technology, certainly you don't need to use it. And obviously if you don't have that uh, network infrastructure available, um, you may not be able to uh, use it. Uh, for most routine cases, again, asynchronous consultation may actually be preferred. Um, it's certainly easier to send images and to send data and to spend more time kind of describing a case uh, using an email than it is uh, sitting on a phone oftentimes. Also by sending the email, our consultants um, have an opportunity to really think maybe at a longer uh, time period about what the uh, problem is that you are presenting them um, and they may be able to develop better or more courses of action um, or uh, broader uh, uh, width of differential diagnoses. Uh, Certainly for the urgent and emergent cases, voice communications plus or minus uh, sending information asynchronously with uh, email or text is uh, valuable. And then video teleconsultation, uh, and this is a Jeremy Pamplin opinion at this point. Uh, I think the video teleconsultation is likely, uh, n- uh, it's most likely needed or maybe even required for procedural telementoring. Um, <clears throat> so uh, interactions between consultants um, uh, and so. Uh, Procedural telemonitoring and uh, consultations or uh, care that is provided by the remote expert directly to the patient. So direct-to-patient virtual care probably requires video telecon Go to the next slide, please. Okay, so uh, just to uh, close this up, some key takeaway points for uh, telemedical support in the operational environment. Um, I think it's important to, again, emphasize that telemedicine is not about the technology. It's really about the people. Uh, training, practice, planning will all optimize patient outcomes, and they will all optimize how you perform teleconsultation. Um, whenever possible, using uh, the consultant or the remote expert uh, in your uh, training development um, will help provide the best uh, Uh, I think training environment, um, but it will also help with the medical decision-making process on the ground. Uh, Particularly when an individual lacks the experience in a particular area, um, uh, a consultation can be extremely helpful and really should occur. It happens every single day in our hospitals, um, and there's no reason it shouldn't be happening in our remote, uh, deployed environments as well. So again, I encourage people to ask for help early and often. Um, the technology side of things um, really need to remain flexible, scalable, convenient, reliable, and consistent. Um, that means that we should not focus our technology on one solution, but really we should provide capabilities that can adapt to whatever network resources are available to the person on the ground. Um, Those types of uh, technology should be scalable for one or many patients, if possible. Um, The technology, whatever technology you plan for, really needs to be convenient. If if it's not convenient, we won't use it. Um, So if you don't know the kit, if you've never used it before, you probably won't break it out when you're in an emergency. Um, The technologies need to be reliable, so every time you go to them, they need to be able to be uh, utilized, um, and they they just need to work every time. And hopefully, as we grow this, these solution sets across the enterprise, they will become uh, more consistent uh, across um, how we uh, across the telemedical system. And with that, I will pause and um, or I will stop and see if there are any questions amongst the group. Uh, so yes, ma'am. So the question was, is the advisor line active? And the answer is absolutely. Um, the uh, phone number is on the slides uh, and if you, um, it's also being distributed amongst uh, a variety of chains of command. Uh, so if you uh, need to call it, um, you're welcome to do so. If you just want to call and test it and not actually test, uh, connect to a consultant, that is also an option. Um, you can just call it up and work yourself through the menus you just don't let it ring all the way through to the consultant so they don't have to pick up and um, you know get most well not most all the consultants that are on the advisor system are otherwise engaged in regular everyday clinical business um, so a lot of just practice calls will be uh, distracting their everyday work but certainly you can you pick up the phone you can uh, test it and see how the menus work for yourself sure so I don't know if I heard a uh, uh, question necessarily in that but um, uh, appreciate the uh, um, uh, your uh, your praise for the lecture uh, the CBA I am familiar with so capabilities based assessment um, and it's probably just worth everybody knowing that if you want to be involved with that or you have some particular insight um, you're welcome to email the people that are on uh, that last slide there myself Major Dan York or Lieutenant Colonel Sean Hip. Uh, certainly there's plenty of other uh, folks, you can get in touch with it to include your change of command that can try to, uh, you know, move information up to us, but those are probably the fastest uh, three uh, people to ping uh, to hopefully get information into that, um, that assessment. I, I want to comment on one more thing with relationship to the advisor uh, toll free number. Uh, Some people have trained with and are currently using some other uh, previous numbers to include the virtual critical care consultation line and the STS-3 uh, numbers. Those numbers are still active and will not go away anytime in the near future, maybe not forever. Um, They just uh, link into a portion of the overall advisor call tree. Uh, So the toll-free number hits you at the top, the VC line just hits you at option one, and the STS-3 line um, enter the system at option two. Any other questions? Uh, That's a great question. So uh, just to repeat the question, um, it was, uh, what is the future of growth for the advisor consultants? Um, And uh, the comment was that as the consultant pool grows, um, the system will become more robust and able to essentially follow the sun with who's on call at any given time. yeah. So again, that's a great that's a great question. Um, I think there's a there's a couple pieces to um, address in it. Uh, the first is there is there really is a balance between uh, the number of consultants that are available on the system um, and their skill set at providing consultation in the inver- in the in the context that we are asking them to provide consultations. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience when you call up a consultant and they provide you recommendations that are just simply not uh, possible to follow, or they are frustrated with. Um, the caller because the caller doesn't have the resources that they, the consultant wants them to have in order to do the recommendations that they want them to do. Um, one of the things that you know all hopefully all the consultants that are on the advisor system now um, have learned we certainly have tried to train them is that you know you always provide the help that the local person needs um, not the help that you want to give them. Um, and providing that consultation and context, again, is a skill set, um, and the more rapidly we expand, the harder it is to make sure that all of the advisors that are on the system have that um, knowledge and expertise and that training uh, so they give the appropriate consultation and context. I think that we are, as we are expanding already, um, there have been a couple of reports of that type of a challenge and we just need to be very focused on that, uh, that we don't expand too quickly, but we also want to be conscious of what you said is uh, the faster we can get more people on board, you know, the more volume and frequency we can handle. Um, That being said, um, uh, the future growth uh, right now is really being, uh, is really kind of tied to some of the approval processes at some of the higher headquarters uh, to allow more consultants from across the enterprise, so different regional um, uh, folks to be involved in the system. Um, Obviously, uh, there's a balance between Uh, providing beneficiary care and then providing this type of consultative care to our operational environments. Uh, I think that the uh, current messaging from our leadership is certainly in favor of uh, providing consultation to our operational forces when we need it, and that is a priority. Um, But, you know, it's difficult sometimes to uh, move the slow-moving ship of both MedCom, BuMed, um, and uh, Air Force uh, Office of the Surgeon General to Uh, you know, to support these types of operational efforts when the focus for so long has been on garrison and beneficiary care. Again, I think the conversation is certainly going in the right direction with that right now, and people are very supportive, but some of the documentation is still catching up. Hopefully that answers your question. So the question, uh, great question again, so the question was about continuity, so if you make a consult, um, is that same uh, consultant remote expert going to be available, you know, seven to eight hours later uh, when you want to re-engage them? Uh, Certainly, uh, and I think this is a great aspect to bring up about training versus real world, when we have done most of our training calls, most training is done as a single phone call to the consultant and usually it does not involve follow-up all of the real-world events that we have been engaged with have required at least one follow-up phone call so the continuity question is really important um, uh, Right now just with the volume and frequency of calls the, the consultants generally speaking you're on call long enough they're usually on for several days at a time so if you call back into the system you usually reach uh, the person that you're you were talking to before as it currently stands obviously that may change in our future Uh, with higher frequency and volume Um, but if you look at if you look at the call scripts that we have been providing one of the first uh, questions on the call script is what's the best contact information for you and we tend to train or we we train our consultants or advisors to provide their personal uh, phone numbers so that you can uh, do with the continuity that you're talking about so once you've accessed the system through a generic number ideally you would get individual numbers so that you could do exactly what you're asking for, which is to call the same person that you've already talked to back. Um, one other interesting way of doing this is how both the asynchronous systems that are currently in play um do it. Uh so the AKO email system as well as the path or help portals, they all send their messages or their Cases uh, to a group of consultants, and then the replies for those cases go to the entire group as well. So the whole group essentially maintains situational awareness of ongoing consultations. Um, that's, I think, a, a, a nice way of doing it. It's a little bit harder to do that, obviously, with synchronous consultations. But if you look at our best practices, whenever possible, you should try to send asynchronous communication along with synchronous communication because it usually ends uh, with better patient uh, um, outcomes uh, or better consultation, better recommendations uh, from a consultant and better understanding from uh, the local caregiver. Uh, Hopefully that answers your question. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC podcast. Our boy is waiting for you.